This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. I thought I would talk a little bit today about our service, Soto Zen service. Um, it's really very beautiful but it might take a little bit of getting into it to see the beauty. So that's what I want to do, is to help you get into it a little bit and uh, help you appreciate the service. First of all, I think it's very interesting that we do a service in Soto Zen because um, our founding teacher in Japan, his name was Ehei Dogen in uh, 13th century Japan. Uh, had this to say. He said, from the first time you meet your teacher and receive the teaching, you no longer have any need for incense offering or homage paying, nembutsu, which is a kind of recitation of Buddha's name, penance, disciplines, or sutra reading. Just cast off your body and mind in the practice of zazen. So this is a pretty radical statement. Uh, Dogen, you know, centuries and centuries ago said, we don't have to do all this stuff, just zazen. And yet, Dogen did all this stuff. But much more than this. I mean, this is really simple service, right? At uh, Dogen's Temple Eheiji in Japan, the services are beautiful and very choreographed, right? Uh, and they're really, they're really gorgeous. Um, and they're exquisite. But you know, this is Dogen's Temple, and Dogen said. None of this is important, just do zazen. So we have to ask, well, why do we do a service? And one thing that's important in this is to recognize, what did Dogen mean when he said just do zazen? Just the practice of zazen means to do everything in the service and in fact, everything in our lives as zazen. So one way of saying is that in our service or in anything else we do, we bring our complete presence to just this, whatever it is. Not do this plus have all of our commentaries and theories about it going on in our minds at the same time. Not that. Not this, plus thinking about what's the next thing we're supposed to do and worrying about did we do the last thing correctly. Dogen said, just drop off body and mind. Meaning, drop off all of our preoccupations. That's, that was his instruction for Zazen. So that's his instruction for how we do everything 
in our uh, spiritual life. Drop off body and mind into just this. And service and any everyday activity that we do is a challenge to be egolessly present in this activity. I say egolessly present, meaning we don't bring our personal agenda to what we're doing. We just do what it is to be done right here in front of us. And uh, so in this way, service or any of our activities are not separate from zazen because we do them with the same mind to be completely present and uh, kind of giving ourselves over to the activity so zazen is to do this with uh, focus and in a way with precision we don't do zazen really very idiosyncratically. You know, we take a, a particular posture. Hands are in a certain position. You know. We find a posture that's upright. It may vary from person to person, right? If you're sitting in a chair, upright means something different than if you're sitting in cushions. But still, we find the posture that's upright for this body. And we keep it. We do it, uh, these things kind of ritually because there's something that we are trying to pay attention to. And this is the Soto Zen style. We have forms for a lot of our activities. You know, we bow in certain ways. Uh, Dogen, who said, you don't need any of these other things, just do Zazen, wrote chapter after chapter about how the monks in his temple should do the daily activities. And you wonder who these monks were. Uh, so one of the things he told his monks how to do was how to eat. And we have a beautiful meal ritual called, called Oryoki. If you practice in monastery, uh, you get a real chance to see what this ritual is like. And Dogen wrote out instructions for how to do this ritual. And they included things like, well, you know, don't take food from your neighbor's bowl. <laughs> so who were these guys that would have even thought of taking food from the neighbor's bowl? You know, all the monks are sitting in a meditation hall. That's where Oryoki is done. In their place in the meditation hall, they have their own bowls. And you, you can hardly reach somebody else's bowl. But he, he, don't do it. So these guys must have been, you know, maybe a little rough around the edges when they first got to the monastery. I guarantee you, when they left the monastery, they weren't. But maybe, a little rougher in the entrance. And Dogen wrote out instructions for how to do all kinds of things. How to wash your face. How to clean yourself after you use the toilet. Very kind of specific instructions. So he made everything, even our most common activities. Even activities that we would think of as kind of defiled. He made them into a ritual. He made them into something that we should pay complete attention to as we do it. And the purpose for this was, this is the Soto Zen way. Soto Zen way is to enter into 
each activity with our full being, but at the same time, dropping off our individual pre preferences and just doing this. So in our lives, you know, we might have to chop the vegetables for supper, but we'd really rather be uh, listening to the news on TV, you know. So we're chopping and listening and, no, that's not the Soto Zen way. The Soto Zen way is to do this activity, whatever it is. And Zazen, of course, is the main activity. And we do just this. So how does that translate in service? Have you ever seen those uh, prayer wheels, kind of, or even prayer flags? They're, they're cylinders, and on the cylinders is inscribed some intention or devotion, or maybe part of a sutra, or prayer flags, or just little flags, you know, that have uh, inscription on them. And um, you can uh, uh, practice with these so that you start them moving and they just continue to move where the flags are blowing in the wind and they're continually blowing in the wind and it's as if the prayer or the sutra, you know, that's inscribed is being constantly recited. Uh, in Japan there's a practice that's called uh, reading the sutras. But what the monks do is they flip through the pages of the sutras. <laughs> it's very interesting because uh, the books in Japan are kind of folded in accordion style. And so they'll flip over one cover and then all of the pages go over to that cover and then flip it the other way and go over to that cover. And so this is like uh, speed reading, I guess. <laughs> but it's like just disseminating the sutra, you know, constantly. And that's what our service is like. A service should be an unbroken flow of activity. And it's kind of choreographed and the doan, the person who's leading the chanting and, and ringing the bells, is is keeping us all together with it. So, you know, she she uh, strikes the mukkyo or the, the wooden drum to keep us in time when we're chanting. And, and the bells that she uh, rings are kind of signals for us to do the various activities that we do in the service. And in the service, the doshi um, means uh, the teacher of the hall uh, officiates. And once it starts, it should be an unbroken flow. So first, you know, I would make an offering. In our zendo, we offer uh, water. Most temples would offer incense, but we have people who are allergic to incense. So we offer something that doesn't interfere with people's uh, well-being instead. But the fact that we start with an offering, it, it tunes us in to the fact that what we're doing is we're honoring Buddha's way. We're honoring the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so we make an offering, and we bow, and then we, we are seated. This is a very ancient formal ritual. When you, when you read the sutras about people who met Buddha in Buddha's time, that's what they did. They bowed, they would actually often circumambulate the Buddha, 
and then go sit down. And so we have our ritualized version of, of greeting the three treasures at the beginning of our service. And then the uh, chanting of the sutra starts, and there's no pause. Um, you may have noticed I went and did an offering as people were sitting down, and I did some bows. But, but the doan starts the chanting of the uh, sutra even before I finish my bows. Everything is kind of embedded, overlaid on the other things, so that there's really no pause in the flow of the service. We could say there's no gaps. And this is, again, another important part of our practice. We don't want to leave a gap. We don't want to leave a gap between, well, things that we do as practices and then other things. You know, we would really like our practice to extend to all of the parts of our life. Now, in our end everyday understanding about bowing, we bow to somebody else. Right? So there's kind of a gap. There's me here, there's the honored person there, and I'm bowing to that honored person. But in the ultimate truth, the so-called other is not really other than ourselves. Right? We're one with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And so the challenge, when we bow, for instance, is how do we express, first of all, that, that separateness that allows us to be honoring the Buddha who taught us you know, these practices, but also simultaneously the oneness that we in all beings have with the three treasures. So this is a spiritual issue in our entire lives. How do we go about daily life where you know, everything is segmented and separate in a way that preserves our understanding that really all things are so interconnected that they can hardly be seen as separate at all. So the best way to bow, a way that kind of expresses, you know, both this separateness and unity, is just to bow, just to bow with your body. We should be completely in our bodies and completely engaged in the bowing without any theories about bowing. Just be fully present with what's happening with that bow. Any ideas we have about bowing are really kind of superfluous. We don't get wrapped up in the theory of bowing and in that way, we're not separating ourselves from anything. We're not separating ourselves from body activity by thinking of something else while we're doing it. We're not separating, separating ourselves from the, the, the bowed two. We say bower and bowed two are the same. And then uh, the, another, the main practice we do, or the, another practice we do in service is chanting. So chanting is a very ancient Buddhist practice. Um, you, you may know that Buddhist teachings were not written down for about 500 years after Buddha died. 
Buddha refused people permission to write down his teachings. So they had to be preserved. And how were they preserved? Well, the monks would get together and they would recite Buddha's teachings together. So they would memorize and recite them together. And that's how sutras came to us. They were preserved in that intimate way of people getting completely involved in them and memorizing them and, and making them into a community activity where they could be preserved in the community. So we take up this ancient practice in our service. We take up this practice to preserve the Dharma, the teachings of Buddha, just like they did, and also to honor them, our ancestors, who allowed the teachings to come to us. And the classic instructions for chanting are, like I said earlier, one, to chant vigorously. We really want all beings to get the Dharma. <laughs> and so they can't get it if we're mumbling. We chant. We chant a forthright way. And the other instruction for chanting is chant with your ears. Which means listen to what the group is doing. Harmonize yourself with what the group is doing. In a way then we chant with one voice. And so we chant sutras, teachings of the Buddha. And chanting a sutra is believed to generate merit, or good karma, we could say. Uh, if you read the sutras, at the end of many, many sutras is a section about what, what merit comes from reading the sutra. Well, a person who were to uh, study this whole sutra and memorize the whole sutra would have great merit and would uh, attain awakening in this lifetime or at the very least the next lifetime. You know, or a person who uh, memorizes one verse of the sutra would also have great merit and that person would attain awakening in this lifetime or the next lifetime or maybe the next lifetime after that. Or even if a person were to memorize and chant one phrase from the sutra, huge merit would, would be generated by this. So we chant a whole sutra. <laughs> An immense amount of merit fills this room. <laughs> and then we don't get too much caught up in merit. But uh, that's, the, that's the real, you know, deep Buddhist tradition. Chanting the sutras is a good thing to do, and so we generate good karma. Because we do that, we don't hoard it for ourselves. So, kind of the last part of the sutra is the dedication, that the doan intones. In and in that dedication, all the merit that's been generated by our practice gets distributed <laughs> to, we distribute it to ancestors, people who taught us this dharma. Sometimes we do a service where the merit of the services is offered for the recovery from illness of one of our members or someone in, in our families. 
this dedication of merit, it's called an echo in Japanese. Helps us uh, find the spirit of generosity. We, we've done a good thing and we give it to all beings. And also the dedication at the end of the service helps us to focus our practice. There's a wonderful line in the dedication we use. It's, we aspire to turn the Dharma wheel unceasingly. Very chance that. And, and so that's great. It's a very helpful thing to remember if we ever get discouraged in our practice, because probably sooner or later there will be a day in which you don't sit, or you don't even want to sit, right? Probably it will happen. But we have this, this, uh, this goal, this idea that what we really want to do is to unceasingly turn the Dharma wheel. And so getting in touch with that kind of helps us, oh, I will sit today. But what I was talking about, about doing every activity in a kind of a spiritual way, and we're bringing our complete presence to the activity. That's also what we mean by turning the Dharma wheel unceasingly. We enter into every aspect of our life with the mind and the spirit of our Zazen practice. So we remind ourselves of the real intention of our practice, which is to benefit all beings, not for personal gain but for the good of all beings. And finally, at the end of the service, we um, invoke uh, Buddha, all the bodhisattvas, and Buddha's wisdom. And maybe it feels like a prayer of some sort. That's fine, if you, if you want to take it as a prayer. I think it's not essentially a prayer, but a labeling. We say, you know, all Buddhas, ten directions, three worlds. In other words, all Buddhas throughout space and time. But when we say that, we're manifesting Buddhist practice, and we're calling out what it is. This is the practice of wisdom and compassion of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. When we evoke them at the end of the service, it's like saying, um, we see them right here in the middle of this practice that we do. So, uh, let me ask, uh, either for reactions that you have during the service or thoughts or questions that you might have about our service. Yeah. Um, I think I've heard about it or heard you 
sort of talked about it before, but the, the 500 year gap of when the teachings were written out was just, it's just touching and sort of like it makes me think about currently how we, uh, the lack of communication between people and lack of connection between people. I know. Um, and so it's just, yeah, you know, I think it's really kind of eye opening that they had to speak it to each other and memorize it and be dedicated. Yeah. Just simply traveling by word of mouth, yeah. uh, and how much know, communication can be toxic now, just like with the current political climate, yeah. um, social media, and all that stuff. But to transmit something like that. Amazing, wasn't it? Could we do it today if we didn't have, you know, paper and pencil and and uh, internet and that kind of stuff? Could we really preserve for hundreds of years? Uh, a set of teachings, a set of teachings that's kind of complex sometimes, right? Now, eventually they were written down, of course, and not just written down, but composed. You know, it, it's pretty clear that the sutras that we have now were edited and, you know, somebody actually wrote them down and figured out what phrase should go where and, you know, what clause should go where. But, um, I don't think we could do it. I can't remember my new work phone number. <laughs> I know. We were going over that today. We had to look it up <laughs> three or four times. What is it again? Right. And, and then to have memorized. You know, and, and, I mean, the fantastic thing is to have had the dedication to do that daily, over and over. And when a new monk joined the group, that monk would be kind of brought into this practice, and it would go on that way for uh, hundreds of years. Wow. So we honor our ancestors. There's real good reasons that we did that. You know, what they did was not simple or easy. Uh, this is two points. <coughs> I think one is. Uh, I've uh, listened to some of these uh, memorize, like the Satipatthana. Oh yeah, Bali. yeah. It's beautiful, and uh, it's just one monk. It's on YouTube. One monk singing it, but all the monks can do it, you know. And I think to myself, like the Heart Sutra, we've got a few of us like memorized, and I just think it's uh, if you're practicing this stuff day in and day out, and at the time, right. Um, and still throughout the world, like the monastic life, you know, they operate as orphanages. They operate, you know, like pivotal mm. functions in society, mm. right? So there's a lot of people in them, too. Mm. Anyway, so I think it's like, I guess part of me, like, yeah, I feel like, because I feel like it's tangible to the people who have been exposed to it. And, like, I think the memorization part of it is a deepening into it. Sure it is. You know, and... Um, the other thing is too, I think like ritual like in our lives exists everywhere. As a reading, uh, I was listening to this one podcast uh, from uh, a teacher in Ohio and his daughter had just graduated. And he's like, you know, we entered the ritual of graduation. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. is, it's like a big ritual. Sure right? And the school does their like fight song and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like, important for like a community to like come together 
do the same thing together. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever that might look like, you know, and I find at least here the rituals that we do here and the service that we do here is to be like deeply moving. You know, and uh, at first it was like it was that. Yeah. <laughs> it was really confusing. Like yeah. it wasn't like, are we doing this? So like and then once that kinda drops and I'm just like doing it and I just know there's other people just doing it with me. And there's right. like this there's like a flow throughout the service and Yeah. And I think you raise an interesting point. At first, when you start to do a service, you're kind of outside of it, looking at it, right? But as you learn to do it, you get inside the service, and you're inside it with everybody else in the room. And so there's an interesting sense of kind of unity and oneness that emerges from doing the same thing as other people. I mean, it happens in our zazen, too. You know, we're sitting, and everybody's sitting, and we're all sitting together. And we're all supporting each other, city, because we're doing the same thing together. Yeah. So and so, ritual is helpful with that, right? Because if we have the same form, we're kind of on the same page all the time. It's not really true that we do exactly the same thing. Everybody sits a little differently, even if everybody is trying to keep the same mudra and. And still, everybody sits a little differently. Everybody bows a little differently. You know, there's individuality comes through in the middle of the sameness. So, so that's kind of what happens in our service. There is separateness and unity at the same time. The thought of like, I just think about it in Zazen, it's like we're, uh, it's like we're separate, but we're separate together. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Like, or uh-huh. kind of like, doing the eternal work together. It's very different than some other traditions that I've been exposed to to where you know, where it is like just complete solitude. I think the ritual and all the stuff that we do here, and I think someone called it the ritual is awesome. Was that? But it is like a ritual, you know? Like the ritual is awesome that we all do together in a way that we can sit quietly with ourselves, with people around us and bring us. Yeah. It's nice. And, and you know, and I'm sure other people have experienced that sitting with somebody on one side and the other side is a much different experience than sitting, you know, by yourself at home. You know, we just kind of did a half-day sashim uh, yesterday. And, uh, uh, there's probably not too many of us who, who sit for periods uh, at home in the morning. Uh, you know, we just kind of don't do it. If we, we could, we, if we asked ourselves to do it, we could do it, but it takes a different uh, intention to do it alone at home. At home, I mean, with the group, everybody's sitting, so of course you're sitting. What else is there to do? Be boring to do anything else, right? Other thoughts are coming.